And I'll do uh, sort of three things. Um, one is I'll tell a very short sort of historical story. Um, and then I'm going to introduce you to the three main systems that I talked about in automating inequality, how high-tech tools profile police and punish the poor. And what I'm going to do when I tell you about these three systems or these, these three stories is I'm going to try to introduce you to them primarily through the experiences of people who see themselves as the targets of these systems. Because I think too often, particularly when we talk about um, the ethical conundrums and challenges of uh, algorithmic decision-making or automated decision-making or AI. We have a tendency to talk about them as if they might happen sometime in the future, um, as if they're interesting <coughs> thought experiments, as if they're beautiful problems, but not actually practices happening in the real world and landing on real bodies in real time. And so I really want to make sure to introduce you to the people I met when I was doing my reporting particularly because um, in asking them to go on record for this book and asking them to share their stories under their real name uh, in the place that they live, they took an extraordinary risk. So most of the folks I talked to who thought of themselves as targets of the systems I describe in the book are currently on public assistance or currently unhoused or had just been housed um, or are currently involved <coughs> in the child welfare system. So going on record really meant um, an incredibly generous sacrifice of increasing their own vulnerability to share their stories. And so I just always try to make sure that when I talk about the book that I acknowledge that commitment that they made and that incredible gift they gave um, to all of us. So I'll make sure that I introduce you to these systems through the people and the families that I spoke to. And then finally, time permitting, I'll sort of draw some big picture um, connections between some of the dots that I've laid out, and that should open us up for, um, for conversation. So I'm here today to talk about what I call in the book the digital poorhouse, which is an invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models in um, social service programs in the United States, though I think there's actually a lot of connections to be made um, with Canada as well, and I'm uh, interested in that conversation. So I want to talk today about how the rise of this invisible institution, the digital poorhouse, um, responds to and recreates a narrative of austerity. This idea that there's not enough for everyone, and that we as a political community have to make hard decisions about who deserves to access their basic human rights and who does not. So we often like to talk about our newest technologies as disruptors, um, but the tools that I talk about in automating inequality are really more evolution than revolution. And their roots go really, really far back in US history, um, at least until the 1820s. And this is the moment where I always stop and thank my wonderful editor, um, Elizabeth Disagard, who looked at my 95-page history chapter at the beginning of this book and said, oh god, do not do this to them. Um, I think I cut 70 brilliant pages out of that original um, chapter and mourn them every day. Um, but in the long run, we ended up with a nice felt 26-page, 300-year history of poverty policy in the United States. Um, I'm only going to talk about one moment today um, in this history, which is right around 1819, where the United States is undergoing this um, pretty extraordinary economic shock of the Depression of 1819. 
um, and economic elites of the time were getting really nervous because of some incredible organizing that was happening among poor and working class people um, for both their rights and for their survival. Um, and so elites, uh, the elites of the time did what elites often do, and they commissioned a bunch of studies. Uh, all the studies basically were, at, um, an, uh, were attempts to answer a basic question, which is, what's the real root of the problem we're facing right now? Is it um, poverty? Is it the lack of resources? Or is it what they called at the time pauperism? And pauperism basically meant dependence on public benefits. Anyone want to guess what the surveys came back? Poverty or pauperism? Poverty or pauperism? I heard a quiet, whisper, a quite correct whisper of pauperism on this slide. Yes. Yeah, so they all came back saying basically the problem is too generous uh, provision of social benefits robs working people of their will to do anything but drink and have more kids and lay around. Um, and so they invented a technology at the time to manage what they saw as this problem. And that technology um, was called the county poorhouse. This is a brick and mortar institution for incarcerating people who asked for support um, from public assistance. So in order to receive any kind of public support, rather than what was sort of confusingly known as outdoor relief, which actually meant in your home, it's very confusing, but um, it meant outside of institutions that it replaced this um, old uh, habit of providing people with basic necessities in their own homes and required that they instead institutionalize themselves before they could receive any benefits. And this was no small choice. Though many of them were technically voluntary, you could be um, sentenced to the poorhouse or the workhouse for things like vagrancy um, or drunkenness or begging or prostitution, which at the time meant having sex and not being married. Um, so you could get sentenced to the poorhouse, but folks who were um, uh, officially voluntarily entering them had to make a number of really um, incredible sacrifices. So if you had the right to vote or hold office at the time, this is 1819, so not everybody had that right, but if you had that right, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You had to give up the right to marry and you often had to give up your, your, your right to your own children. So at the time, it was believed that poor uh, working class children could be redeemed by having more interaction with wealthier families. By interaction, they generally meant um, binding them out as um, either uh, domestic or agricultural laborers. Um, and at some of these institutions, the death rates were as high as 30% annually. So it's like a third of people who entered the poorhouse every year died in the most notorious of them, like um, the poorhouse in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. So people were really literally taking their lives in their hands um, when they entered the poorhouse. And just so you don't feel left out, um, the Toronto House of Industry, does anyone know where the Toronto poorhouse was? Know your history. Okay, so uh, 87 Elm Street at the corner of Elm and Elizabeth, it's, it's now the YWCA, it's across the street from the Children's Hospital right downtown. 99 years it was open. 1848 didn't close till 1947, right? Um, and then it was a, like a nursing home for a while, and, and now is the uh, YWCA. Um, and one of one of the reasons it was called the Toronto House of Industry is because um, able-bodied inmates were forced to crush rock in exchange for their um, uh, benefits in um, in that workhouse. And I feel particularly connected to it because the poorhouse in my county um, was called the Rensselaer County House of Industry, and they also crushed rocks. So Toronto and Troy were like this. 
Um, so I use this metaphor of the digital poorhouse in the book to illustrate what I think of as like the deep social programming of these technologies. Um, in sort of technical terms, the legacy programming on which all the other programming runs. Um, at their heart is this decision we made way, way back in the 1820s, which is the very first and most important thing public services should do is a kind of moral diagnosis. It should decide who deserves support and who does not. Rather than seeing um, public services um, as a universal floor under us all. So, but I want us to think today about this political moment, not just the past, about why these specific tools have become popular at this precise time. And I think that the high-tech tools that we're now using for establishing eligibility, for predicting behavior, for measuring effectiveness, for predicting risk, um, have risen, risen to prominence right now for several reasons. Um, and I'll go through these one by one. Um, but the first is they rationalize and recreate that politics of austerity, that narrative that there's not enough for everyone. The second is that they purport to address bias, but they actually just hide it. And the third is that um, they create, at their worst, a kind of empathy override that allows us to sort of ease or escape the emotional burden of making really inhumanly difficult decisions um, about who among the United States' 43 million poor people deserve support. So I'm going to go through these one by one. Uh, let's talk first about automating austerity. So I um, dedicate the book to a severely disabled little girl named Sophie Stites. Um, when she was six, she received a letter from the state of Indiana that explained that she would be losing her Medicaid benefits because she had, quote, failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. Um, the letter was um, addressed directly to her, a six-year-old girl with cerebral palsy. Um, so this happened just as she was gaining weight, really for the first time on par with normal growth um, in her life, thanks to a life-saving feeding tube, a gastrointestinal tube that had been implanted recently, and learning to walk for the first time. So the Stipes family was caught up in an attempt to automate all of the eligibility processes for the state's welfare program. So that's cash welfare, what's called um, TANF in the United States. Um, uh, what was at the time called food stamps is now called SNAP or Supplemental Nutritional Aid Program, wait, Assistance Program, um, and uh, Medicaid or uh, medical care uh, for the indigent. Um, so in 2006, then Governor um, Mitch Daniels signed a one point, what was eventually a $1.34 billion contract, that's billion with a B, uh, with a consortium of companies including IBM and ACS, Affiliated Computer Systems, to create a system that basically replaced the hands-on work that had been done by county caseworkers in the past with online applications and privatized, regionalized call centers. Um, and so what that looked like from the front lines was for caseworkers in the past, they had been responsible for a caseload of families, like a docket of individual families whose case they often followed as they um, successfully got on or, or um, were deemed inel ineligible and um, got what they needed and got off of public assistance. Um, rather than responding to that caseload, they moved to what's known as a task-based system, where instead of being responsive and responsible for a group of families, you're only responsible for a list of tasks as it sort of um, comes into your computerized workflow management system. Um, 
from the point of view of applicants, it felt like anytime anything went wrong, um, there was not a single person that you had been working with. So it was very, very hard to hold anyone accountable for a mistake. It basically meant that if anything went wrong and you got one of these failure to cooperate notices, that it was on you to figure out what, had, what, you know, what mistake had been made. It could be that you forgot to sign page 34 of a 50 page application. It could be that the new caseworker working in the regional call center gave you bad policy advice, so you did the wrong thing. Or it could just be a technical problem. For example, there was um, a data processing center, a document processing center that um, advocates eventually called the Black Hole in Marion because so many pages of documentation disappeared there. Um, so any of those mistakes would just be reported to you um, as a failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And at that point, it was really up to you to figure out what had gone wrong and fix it within 10 to 13 days, which is extraordinarily challenging, of course. So the result was um, a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment. It's a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment. Um, and because um, the failure to cooperate notice um, only said there was a mistake or an error, um, not what it was, and severed the relationship between caseworkers and applicants, it basically guaranteed that all the burden of fixing those mistakes fell on the most vulnerable families in Indiana. And that created really incredible hardship. Um, for, for Hoosiers, which is, if people don't know, people from Indiana are known as Hoosiers. Um, so I just want to tell you one story um, that I reported from Indiana briefly. Um, and this is the story of Omega Young from Evansville. In the fall of 2008, Omega Young of Evansville missed an appointment to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. The cancer that began in her ovaries had spread to her kidneys, breast, and liver. Her chemotherapy left her weak and emaciated. Young, a round-faced, umber-skinned mother of two grown sons, struggled to meet the new system's requirements. She called her local help center to let them know that she was hospitalized so she couldn't make a telephone uh, recertification appointment, um, but she was still cut off for failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Because she lost her benefits, Young was unable to afford her medications. She lost her food stamps. She struggled to pay her rent. She lost access to free transportation to medical appointments. And Omega Young died on March 1st, 2009. The next day, on March 2nd, she won an appeal for wrongful termination, and all of her benefits were restored. So that's Indiana. Um, I want to point out that um, though this experiment cost people like Omega Young and her family most, um, that the um, experiment actually cost everyone in the state of Indiana. So the experiment actually went so badly that after three years and a lot of pushback from social movements and organizations, um, the governor actually canceled the contract um, three years into a 10-year run. Um, IBM then turned around and sued the state for breach of contract. And in the first round through the courts actually won, um, which meant they not only got to keep the half billion dollars they had already collected, but they were awarded an extra $50 million because the state had breached the contract. Now that went back and forth in the courts for nine years. Um, and in the end, uh, so Indiana won and got $78 million back. 
Um, but I wonder if that even comes close to covering the cost of nine years of court, plus all of the fair hearings because of the mistakes that were made, not to mention not even touching the human cost uh, of these experiments. So one of the things that I think is really important about these systems is that um, good systems are actually really expensive and time consuming to build, and bad systems are only cheap at first, right? And in the end, they'll end up creating the um, cycle of austerity that they say they're just responding to. Okay, so second story is um, about a system in Allegheny County that's known as the um, Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. It is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect sometime in the future. Um, and for this story, I wanna start by introducing you to the family, is that okay? Still with me? We all right? We're all right. Okay, good. Um, so uh, one of the families I reported with in um, Allegheny County were Angel Shepherd and Patrick Greed. Um, and so I just want to introduce you to them. So I met Angel and Patrick at uh, the Duquesne Family Support Center, which is like a, um, a community hub where child welfare-involved families come together to do sort of peer support and to take classes and to connect with each other. Um, and they didn't stand out right away to me because their experience was really so utterly average. It was um, characteristic, really, of the mundane, routine indignities of the white working class. So they've struggled with low-wage, dangerous work, poor quality public schools and predatory online education, poor health, and community violence. But through it all, they've remained really engaged, innovative parents. So I describe um, Patrick as a uh, I think I should call him a Buddhist ex-biker. Um, so he's this enormous rectangle of a man with really complicated facial hair. It's like very calm. <laughs> um, and um, the Angel and Patrick are caring for um, two young girls who are really close in age. So Harriet, Angel's daughter, and um, Desiree, Patrick's daughter's daughter. Um, and because they're so close in age, they bicker a lot. And so um, when they bicker, Angel and Patrick put them in what they call the get-along shirt. And the get-along shirt is one of Patrick's like enormous button-down shirts. Um, and they put both the girls in one shirt, one arm through one armhole, one arm around the waist of the other girl, and then they button it back up. And you're not allowed to leave the get-along shirt before you get, until you can get along, even if you have to go to the bathroom. And that's the thing that Patrick says always works, right? As soon as someone has to pee, Everyone starts to get along because no one wants to go to the bathroom in a get-along shirt. Um, so despite this really sort of extraordinary parroting, um, Angel and Patrick have racked up a lifetime of interactions with um, Children, Youth, and Family Services, which is what the child welfare system is called in Allegheny County. In other places, it's called the Child Protective Services, or CPS. Um, so Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s when he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's antibiotic prescription after an emergency room visit. So he went to the emergency room, uh, they prescribed antibiotics, he couldn't buy them, she got worse, he took her back to the emergency room, and the nurse reported him to Child Protective Services. Um, when Harriet was five, someone phoned in a string of reports um, to the, ch the county's child abuse and neglect hotline. Um, so this is an anonymous caller um, who said that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, or bathed, and that she wasn't getting needed medication. So for each call, an investigator came out to the house, interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all the cupboards and under all the beds, 
um, and requested access to the family's medical records. And each time they found no evidence of maltreatment and closed the case. Um, but um, each of those interactions was entered into the family's digital case file, which sits in this um, integrated data warehouse built by Allegheny County in 1999. And that data warehouse is what um, provides the data, the validation, the training, and, and the working data for the Allegheny family screening tool. So Patrick and Angel have a sort of rough idea of what's going on. They know that they're being risk rated um, and they describe to me as living in a state of uh, sort of constant low-grade terror that another call would be made on either their daughter or their granddaughter for investigation and possibly for removal to foster care. So Angel said to me, you feel like a prisoner. You feel trapped. It's like no matter what you do, it's not good enough for them. My daughter's now nine, and I'm still afraid they're going to come up one day, see her out by herself, pick her up, and say, you can't have her anymore. So um, a little bit about this model. So the model is built on top of this data warehouse that was um, built in 1999 by the county um, with a foundation, private foundation funds. Currently it holds a billion records, or as of the writing of the book, it held a billion records, more than 800 for every individual in Allegheny County. Um, but it doesn't collect data equally on everyone. Because it is a county database, they really only have access to data about people who reach out for support of their families to public services. So, I mean, we all need help with our parenting, right? Because this is not a simple thing. Um, but professional middle-class families tend to get that support and pay for it out of pocket or through private insurance. So if you are a professional middle-class family, you've got an, an issue with addiction or mental health, you're gonna go to a doctor because in the United States, mo most of our insurance <laughs> is covered by employers. That information is private, never ends up in the data warehouse. But if you're a poor and working class person, you have a problem with addiction or mental health, you have to go to the county office of addiction recovery or you have to go to the county office of mental health and your data ends up in the data warehouse. Um, if you need support with um, childcare and you're a professional middle class family, um, you can uh, hire a nanny, you can um, buy um, daycare. Um, if you don't have the resources to do that, you have to go to the county for support around that. Your data ends up in the, in, in the data warehouse. Um, so data extracts are regularly collected for the system from uh, about 30 different agencies in the county and the state. So adult and juvenile probation, the jails and prisons, county mental health services, um, the State Office of Income Maintenance, which is um, Pennsylvania's welfare office, the public schools, and other agencies that primarily interact with poor and working class families. And the limits of this data really shape the um, AFST's ability predi to predict. It shapes what the system is able to see. Um, so um, the parents basically um, described to me a fear of uh, false positives, which makes sense from the point of view of parents. The fear that they'd be seen as um, posing a risk to their child um, when uh, no risk actually exists. So they described to me that they felt like um, the system confused parenting while poor with poor parenting. And because they were part of this loop of uh, concentrated digital surveillance, it created a feedback loop of injustice 
where because they were suspected of being riskier, more information was collected about them. Because more information was collected about them, they had more data to create a higher risk score, which meant that they're investigated more often and the sort of uh, wheel turns back around, much in the way that people have critiqued predictive policing. Um, this is the kind of critique I heard from parents. Interestingly, I also spent a whole day sitting in the call center, um, which is the place where intake screeners get these calls from the county hotline or get mandated reports from mandated reporters and make this really difficult decision where they decide um, basically whether each call is going to go to investigation, merits a full investigation, or whether it'll be screened out. And the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is supposed to um, supplement and support their decision making. So it's basically like a thermometer. It goes zero to 20. It's like green at the bottom, red at the top. It says very clearly at the bottom, this tool should not be used to make well, um, child welfare decisions, which I think is super interesting. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and um, so I sat with these intake call screeners um, for most of the day and talked to them about their job. And one of the things that they said um, was that they were concerned about the system for the same reasons, or um, but because they're afraid of the opposite result. So for intake caseworkers, intake screeners, they felt like because the system totally lacked information on professional middle-class families, that it was unlikely to be able to see the real dangers that exist in those families and unable to identify the kinds of risks that happen in professional middle-class um, communities. So for example, there's really good evidence that geographic isolation and abuse and neglect are correlated but folks who live in geographically isolated areas aren't in this database. Um, so that's a kind of um, a, an indicator of harm that's entirely <coughs> missing um, from this system. So one of the things that's really interesting about the system is that its designers are very clear that one of its goals is to help mitigate um, individual bias discretion among those intake caseworkers that I talked about. And it's a really interesting claim, but one that is not supported by my research uh, or my reporting. Um, because these, these models don't actually um, remove bias, they simply move it. So I have a very smart uh, political scientist friend named Joe Soss who says, discretion is like energy. It's never created or destroyed, it's only ever moved, <laughs> right? And so basically what this system does is move discretion from those intake call screeners, who are, by the way, the most diverse, the most female, and the most working class part of the, the workforce, and move it to the international team of economists and um, social scientists who built the model, who build in lots of invisible assumptions about what a safe family looks like and what a dangerous family looks like. And I'll give you a concrete example of that. Um, so the counties, um, so they've aimed this tool at um, uh, individual discretion among intake call screeners, right? But the county's own research shows that that's not the point at which discrimination is actually entering the system. They have a huge problem with racial disproportionality in foster care in Allegheny County, like pretty much every other county in the United States. Something like 39% of the children in foster care are black, uh, black or black and biracial, I'm forgetting that, um, I believe African-American. And um, they only make up 18% of the youth population. So they're more than twice as likely to be in foster care than they should be based on, um, on their um, uh, proportion of the population. Um, but 
the county's research shows that the point at which that bias enters the system is actually the point of community referral. It's the point at which people call into the system or report into the system. So um, black and biracial families are three and a half times more likely to be called on than white families. Once they get to the point of intake screening, it adds just a little scotch more bias, 4%. So um, call screeners screen in 69% of cases about black and biracial families and only 65% of cases um, that involve white families. But the reality is this is an incredibly sophisticated tool aimed at where the problem is not. The problem actually end, um, uh, comes into the system much earlier in the process, at the point at which people make decisions about what a safe and healthy family looks like and what dangerous parenting looks like. And that's really a cultural issue and not one that I'm sure can be easily um, identified or addressed by data-based practices. That's a cult the cultural idea that a safe and happy and healthy family looks a particular way and that is white and wealthy. Um, so um, at best, this is a tool, a sophisticated tool aimed where the problem isn't. At worst, this is a tool that removes discretion from the human beings who actually provide the bulwark against that discrimination when it enters the system. Um, and that if they remove the discretion from those call screeners, it definitely provides the opportunity to intensify, amplify, and automate the inequality that we see coming in at call screening. Okay, last one. That one's like the most complex, I think both ethically and technically. Um, still have enough energy for one more? Yeah, okay. All right, so um, the third system that I talk about in the book is called the coordinated entry system. Oh, yeah, we can talk about proxies later if you want to talk. That's technical rabbit hole, like three. Um, we can talk about that later if you want. Um, so the third system I talk about in the book is the coordinated entry system in Los Angeles County, um, which proponents call the match.com of homeless services. Um, so its intention is to match the most vulnerable unhoused people with the most appropriate available resource. Um, and this is a, a, a really understandable kind of digital triage that's happening in a county where there are 58,000 unhoused people. So I live in a small city in upstate New York. My entire city plus 8,000 people are homeless in LA. Um, and while it's not number one in the number of homeless, it's actually number two, um, New York City has 76,000 homeless people. Um, it's um, really in, uh, uh, incredibly intense in Los Angeles because something like 75% of unhoused people there are completely unsheltered, meaning they don't have any access to emergency shelter. They're just living in encampments and tents and cars um, in parks. Um, so it's really understandable that the folks on the front lines of homeless services um, want some help in making these really difficult decisions of like, I see 100 people a week. I have resources for two of them. Who do I decide who to give this to? Um, so the system basically works by assigning each unhoused person a score on a scale of vulnerability from zero to 17. And they get this score by giving um, this very intensive and some think very intrusive survey with a terrible acronym. It's called the VI-SPDAT, um, which is the Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. 
Um, and the VIs for that includes questions like, um, are you currently trading sex for money or drugs? Uh, have you thought recently about harming yourself or someone else? Is there someone who owes you money? Or who, is there someone who thinks you owe them money? Is there an open warrant out for you? Um, where can you be found at different times of the day? And can we take your picture? Um, once that information is collected, um, it goes into um, a federally organized system called an HMIS, which is the Homeless Management Information System. The HMIS runs the algorithm that creates this vulnerability score on a scale of 0 to 17. At the same time, on the other side of the system, um, they're inputting whatever sort of resources are available for folks. So some of those resources are permanent supportive housing, which is like an apartment and uh, social services, it's like it's a house key. It's the golden ring of homeless services. Um, some of them are the much more time and resource limited resources of rapid rehousing, which basically are intended for um, uh, sort of the crisis homeless, folks who have just ended up homeless because of, of an eviction or domestic violence um, and just need a little bit of resources to sort of get them back on their feet, um, whether that's like moving money or whether that's help with an eviction. Um, so in the middle, there's supposed to be an algorithm that matches unhoused people based on their score with the most appropriate available resource that's coming in from the other side. As of the writing of the book, that was actually a mechanical Turk. That was actually like a guy sitting in a room. Um, so there was no second algorithm. Um, but what I was really interested in is by the, by the time I wrote the book, they had managed to survey 39,000 people and they had managed to serve 9,000 of them with some kind of resource. So that's not an apartment, that's not the house key, that's not the golden ring, that could just be help with an eviction, but any kind of support, any kind of resource counted as a match in the system. Um, and that's not bad, that's like not a bad record. But what I was really wondering about is how those 30,000 people who had done this very um, intrusive survey, um, sometimes two or three or four times, and not gotten any resources at all, how they felt about the system. Um, and these are people like uh, Gary Boatwright. I wanna introduce you to, um, Gary is known uh, as Uncle Gary. Um, and when I met him, he had been living in a gray and green tent um, on East 6th Street on the edge of Skid Row in LA for many, many years. Um, he's a straight-talking, wryly funny man with thinning white hair and Santa Claus blue eyes. He's had a dozen careers. He was a welder, a mason, a paralegal, a door-to-door -door salesman, a law student, and most recently he was a document processor for a wholesale mortgage lender, uh, which is a story full of ironies um, because the mortgage lender he worked for actually was later found to be on the subprime 25, which basically created the recession in the United States and also created a huge wave of homelessness <laughs> in, in Los Angeles. Uh, so his story was uh, full of ironies. Um, so by the time I talked to him, uh, Gary had filled out the VI spadat three times and had really lost patience with the process. Um, so he doesn't think he scored very high on the vulnerability index um, because the, though he was 64, um, really he only had a little bit of high blood pressure and a little bit of a hearing problem, so he's mostly healthy. Um, his substance use to me didn't seem abusive or debilitating. Um, he has a mental health diagnosis, but he doesn't actually know what it is because he was only told about his diagnosis in court in Orange County, um, and no one ever shared any more information about it with him. Uh, but he doesn't think he scored very high. 
Um, but the problem, as he sees it, is not his comparative vulnerability, it's simple math. There's not enough housing in Los Angeles for the county's 58,000 unhoused people. So he said to me, um, people like me who are somewhat higher functioning, we're not getting housing. It's another way of kicking the can down the road. In order to house the homeless, you have to have available units. Show me the units, otherwise you're just lying. So in November of 2016, as I was finishing the manuscript, Gary was arrested and he was charged with breaking the window of a public bus with a plastic 99 cent store broom, which when he called me from Men's Central Jail, um, he said was, quote, physically impossible. Um, he got out about a year ago, um, and by the time he got out, he had really sort of lost everything, his tent, his paperwork, his relationships with local organizations and friends. Um, and if he chooses to interact with the VI Spadat again, he'll actually score lower um, because it counts incarceration as being housed. So the model will actually see him as less vulnerable and his priority score will slip um, even farther. Okay, so um, a couple of sort of big overarching um, uh, themes and then we'll move to conversation. Um, so I can hear skeptics now. I've, I, I've been um, on the road touring with this book for 14 months, so I know what people are going to say. Um, one of the things that people say is like, come on, Virginia, scary stories sell books. You cherry-picked the worst systems you can find just to write this like terrifying Darth Vader book um, that would sell a bunch of copies. Um, but here's the reality. So Indiana was pretty bad. Like, I actually, there's, there's, it's, um, I don't know what was in Governor Mitch Daniels' heart. I cannot peer into his soul. Um, but one of my sources in Bloomington, Indiana said, uh, you know, if we had built a system to deny people access to public services on purpose, it would not have worked any better than this. Um, so maybe there's a bit of black hat going on in Indiana. But the reality is in both Los Angeles and in Allegheny County, the folks who built these systems, all of whom I spoke to, um, are very smart, very well-intentioned people who care deeply about the people their agencies serve. Um, and in fact, they've done most of the things progressive critics of algorithmic decision-making asked them to do. So they were largely transparent. They shared details of how the systems work, though importantly, not all of them. Um, they were largely accountable in that in, in both places, the um, tool was held in the public um, in a public agency, or at least in a public-private partnership. And there was even some processes of participatory design in the design of some of these um, technologies. In other words, these are some of our best systems, not some of our worst. So here's a really challenging thought. What if the problem with the coming age of AI and machine learning and social services is not broken systems, is not inaccuracies, um, but rather systems that carry out the deep social programming of social services too well, um, that um, limit access, that police behavior um, in just the same way the, the brick and mortar poorhouse did. So the designers of all of the systems I talked to for this book really kind of agreed on one thing, which is um, though these systems may be in some cases regrettable, they're necessary for doing a kind of digital triage. Um, that making um, decisions about whose lives are immediately threatened by economic inequality and who can wait. But the decision to triage at all is actually a political decision. And it's actually not appropriate to use the language of triage 
unless the crisis is temporary and there are more resources coming. If the crisis is not temporary, if there are not more resources coming, then what we're doing is actually automating rationing, not digitizing triage. And I think it's important to call it exactly what it is. So I think um, we deserve better than the systems we're getting. I think our people deserve better. I think our communities do deserve better. Um, I think the fundamental danger of the digital poorhouse is that it requires that we think small, um, both in terms of our resources and in terms of our um, political imagination, that we accept sort of arbitrarily enforced limits, um, both to resources and to vision. And this political moment that we're living in right now, and justice itself, demands that we think big, that we sort of push back against austerity fever. Um, so what to do? Um, I absolutely know that one of the things people most want me to do when I come to talk is like give you a five-point plan for building better technologies. And I'm sorry, and you're welcome, I'm not doing that. Um, I think we have some really deep work to do, and I'm going to talk here specifically about the United States, though I do think there are some really important parallels. There's some key differences, but there's some important parallels in Canada as well. So I think this work really has to happen on three levels at the same time. Um, the first is a narrative level. It's a cultural shift. So in the United States, we tell a story about poverty, that it's an aberration in an otherwise perfectly functioning system. Um, that it is um, a, a tiny percentage of probably pathological people who find themselves under the poverty line. Um, but Mark Rank's fantastic um, life cycle research shows really clearly that in the United States, 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point in our adult lives. That is between the years of 20 and 64. And close to two thirds of us, 65% of us, will receive means-tested public assistance. So that's straight welfare. That's not um, reduced price school lunches, that's not social security, that's not uh, unemployment, that's straight welfare. Um, so if, uh, if it is true that poverty is a majority condition in the United States, then it makes no sense to do this incredibly um, increasingly sophisticated moral diagnosis of who deserves help and who doesn't. This is simply a condition of living in the United States and not something that needs to be figured out, right? Um, so I believe that one of the major things we need to do is learn to tell the stories of poverty in the United States differently, including learning to claim our own histories of being on public assistance and being below the poverty line. Um, the second um, change that I hope to see is a, ch is a shift in politics. So I believe a shift in the way we share our stories can shift the way we do politics. And this means moving away from means-tested, punitive public programs that spend so much of their efforts, so many of their resources, deciding who deserves help, rather than um, using an approach that's based in basic universal human rights. So in the United States, we can decide at any point that we draw a line below which no one is allowed to go for any reason. There's no decision that you can make that means your family should be split up because you can't afford a child's medication. There is no choice that you can make that means you should live on the street in a tent for 10 years, right? No one in the United States needs to go hungry. And at any point, we can make this set of decisions. Um, so in other places around the world, the kind of conditions that I talk about in this book are seen really readily as what I believe they are, which is human rights violations. And I think it should give us some really profound pause 
that we are increasingly talking about them as systems engineering problems rather than as human rights problems. I think at worst, what these tools can do is allow us an empathy override, allow us a way to ignore some of the deepest political problems that we face as a nation. Um, and finally, in the meantime, we have to design less harmful technology. So the technology is not going to just like sit twiddling its thumbs while it waits for us to work out all these cultural and political issues. So clearly, we have to also engage with technology design. Um, and one of the things that I say when I'm talking specifically to designers <laughs> is that we have a tendency now to design these tools in neutral and then behave as if them being in neutral is the same thing as fairness, justice, or equity. And in a world that is riven by inequality, designing in neutral is actually just designing for the status quo. So the image I, help, I, I use to help people understand this is like, say that we're building a car, and we're building a car to actually traverse the landscape of a very hilly, twisty, turny place. Let's just say it's like San Francisco. <laughs> and we build this car with no gears. And then we um, you know, get in it at the top of Telegraph Hill and are then surprised somehow when we crash into a fiery ball at the end, at the bottom of the hill. Um, the reality of the world we live in uh, requires us to build equity gears into these tools and these technologies. And the thought of building in neutral as being enough is just indefensible in the world we actually live in. So if we're to build a more just future, we have to build it on purpose, bit by bit and bite by bite. Um, if we outsource our moral responsibility to care for each other, to computers, we really have no one but ourselves to blame when these systems supercharge discrimination and automate inequality. I really appreciate your attention and your time and I'm really eager for the conversation. Thank you so much.